Father, come and teach us today. Teach us by your Spirit so much that we would be transformed internally with a greater adoration and devotion for your Son, Jesus Christ, whom is our life and our hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The next several weeks will be mostly about worship and looking at what God's requirements are for his worshipping community. Uh, I grew up, as most of you know, in a what most would call a secular society, so never really coming across uh, many other Christians, certainly none who, who were willing to be uh, upfront with their Christianity, uh, very separate from organized religion. And the term worship was not really something that was thrown around. We use it a lot in Christian circles, but it's really more of a Christianese type word or really a word for organized religion or like new age spirituality. No one outside, no one in a secular society really says that they worship anything. It's not a word that gets thrown around. Yet, uh, we are all worshipping people. Everyone worships something. At its core, worship is simply the expression of adoration and absolute devotion towards someone or something. And if you have ever um, gone to a music concert or gone to watch um, a football game, uh, like most of us have come from Adelaide, and if you go to a showdown and see Port versus the Crows, it takes some um, extreme devotion for like grown men to paint themselves in teal and to be screaming out for their team, to, to just organize their week based around this Saturday that they get to go and worship their team and be devoted to the cause of the pair or the Crows whoever it may be, and whatever it is, whether it's football or music, we see worship, we see this kind of extreme devotion all around. People are devoted to concepts, to ideologies. People live for that. So we are all a worshipping people. But what is true worship before God? Because God is not pleased with most of the worship that goes on. What is true worship before God? This is what we will look at today. True worship before God certainly carries the same idea of devotion and adoration. We are to be devoted and we are to adore our God. This is worship. It's, it's to be directed totally toward Him. And that's part of true and proper worship is we have this adoration and devotion. And it is totally directed toward the God of heaven and earth, primarily toward His Son, whom is the visible image of the invisible God. Our devotion and adoration toward God must be done with reverence, in humility. So the word most often translated as worship in the Old Testament, literally just means to bow down. It's more of a posture. The word actually means to bow down. It's, it's this reverential act. It's bowing down as someone who is inferior before someone who is superior. And this was fundamental to an ancient culture. Um, humility on the part of the worshiper. So the act of bowing down was supposed to magnify 
the object being worshipped. When you bow down, you show yourself as inferior, and so it magnifies that which you are worshipping. It shows them as worthy, as superior. And this is fundamental to our worship. So this is a bit of a framework for us before we jump in. Firstly, that we are all worshippers. Every human being is a worshipping being. We worship something. Secondly, that true and proper worship is directed toward God with reverence. And the last thing I want to note before we jump in is that worship is, is biblical worship, the way we see it, is often done in silence. So when we look at the times of worship in the Bible throughout the Old Testament, as I mentioned, the word most often used is to bow down. It's more of an act of uh, a solemn, reverential act. And this doesn't mean that we cannot worship by singing. Obviously, we have a whole book in the Bible that's a praise book, the Psalms, and they are meant to be sung. And so singing is part of it. But I say this, that worship was primarily done in silence early on because in our modern understanding of worship, we often use the word worship to basically describe singing. So you might hear people say, well, I really like the worship. And what they mean is I really like the time of singing and music. And it's a little bit like me if I say that I love um, rugby union and I like going to watch rugby union and whenever you hear me talk about rugby union I say hey I'm gonna go watch sport today would you like to go um, with me to watch some sport and you know that I'm only ever talking about rugby union and and you might say how about we go watch cricket and I'm like no no, no I want to go watch sport I want to go watch um, sport it would sound awfully odd wouldn't it it's somewhat true that when I go to watch Rugby Union, I'm watching sport, but it's not quite right. Rugby is a sport, it's a part of sport, but it's not the whole thing. So when we use worship in that sense to only ever mean singing, it's somewhat true, but we're missing the point. There's a lot more to worship than just singing and music, just like there's a lot more to sport than just Rugby Union. It's a whole, um, it's a whole lot bigger. So. This is our framework just as we jump in. We are all worshippers. True worship is directed toward God with reverence and humility. And true worship is more than simply singing. It is. Singing is a part of it, but it is more than simply singing. So in Deuteronomy chapter 12, today we will see five principles of worship. And then I want to draw five conclusions from that. So there's five key principles that we see here in Deut Deuteronomy chapter 12. The first is in the first three verses, verses one to three. Genuine worship is exclusive and uncompromising. So in verses one to three, God calls the people to be careful to obey all that he has commanded because this is actually part of their worship, their obedience to him. And he tells them to destroy all of the places and objects of the foreign worship. There were people in the land before and they worshipped foreign gods. They worshipped in a different way. And God tells them to destroy everything. All of their altars, all of their statues, destroy everything. I don't want a hint of foreign worship in the land which I'm placing you in. So he says on the high mountains, the hills, under every green tree, tear it all down. The command is to be completely uncompromising with other people's worship practices. It is to destroy everything. So it's not like the people of Israel could sort of say to Yahweh, their God, 
you know, it seems a bit um, counterproductive to destroy all of these altars. God, why can't we just worship you and use this altar? Because it's already there. You know, we can move on to bigger and better things and we can worship you. But you want us to destroy this one and then build another one elsewhere? Why can't we just like use what they've got and use it to, to worship you? But God says, no way. I don't want to hint of foreign, idolatrous worship among my people. And God does this because he must demonstrate that he alone is worthy of all worship. It's exclusive and uncompromising. In Isaiah 42, 8, the Lord says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So that's him saying, my, my glory, that's why we worship. We worship because he is glorious, he's worthy of worship. And God is saying, my glory, I do not give to anyone else. I don't want my worship going to anyone else. It is rightfully mine. And God must make this known because anything else would be a lie. And we kind of have this built into us. Imagine if you came across someone who did something incredibly heroic. They were just on their way home and they saw a house burning down and they jumped in. They kicked down the door already on fire and they saved the family. They brought the baby out and placed them neatly on the ground with the rug around and really cared for them. And then five minutes later, the news crew came and uh, they started interviewing this other person who rocked up about 30 seconds before the news crew and they thought that he was the one who saved the family out of the burning house. And, and he starts taking credit for it. And he's saying, yeah, it was really, uh, you know, I was really scared, but I'm just thankful that I did it and everyone's safe now. And if you were watching on, there would be a sense of injustice in you. That's, that's the wrong guy. He, this guy did it all and he's getting nothing. And this pleb comes along and steals the glory. That's just built in with us. It feels unjust. That's why God must destroy all foreign worship. He must make known that all worship is rightfully his because it's true. He's the only one that deserves worship. So he must make known that he alone is worthy of worship. So therefore he is uncompromising with our worship. It must go totally to him. It is exclusively his. That's the first principle we see. The second one is in... Verses 4 to 7, but I think it's, it's kind of woven throughout this passage here. Genuine worship is according to God's prescription. Genuine worship is as God has prescribed. He has set it out. So from verse 4, if you read along, after God commands them to destroy all of the false gods and false prophets, notice what he says. He says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way in the way of the way they did. You don't worship me in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all the tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. So not only must we not worship false gods, but we must not worship the true God falsely. This is kind of coming off a foundation of the second commandment. You remember the second commandment is that you shall not have any carved idols you should not make an image of god and the reason that is different from the first commandment which is to have no other gods before me is because the first commandment is largely to do with having not not having false gods having no other gods before the true god and then the second commandment is really to do with then 
not worshiping the true God falsely. So God is saying, not only do not have any false gods, but don't use their ways of worship. Don't use their practices to worship me. I have prescribed the way that I am to be worshipped. And there is a temptation in our individualistic and relativistic society to think that we can worship God however we please so long as we are worshipping God. You might have heard people say things before like, well, it doesn't really matter how they're worshipping so long as their heart is in the right place. It doesn't really matter how they do it, just as long as they're really worshipping the Lord. But that seems awfully contrary to what God says right here. He says, you must not worship me in their way. There's a way which I have instructed, I prescribe that you are to worship. God leaves no room for our methods of worship, which are separate from his prescribed way of worshiping. And later on in chapter 12, from verses 29 to 31, he's even clearer about this. He says, take care that you not be ensnared to follow them. So he's talking about the the gods, the foreign gods and the way in which the, the foreign nations worship them. Take care that you not be ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you and that you do not inquire about their gods saying, how did these nations serve their gods that I may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way for every abominable thing the Lord hates they have done for their gods. So he says they sacrifice their children in fire as a sacrifice to the Lord. Don't you ever do that. Don't ever take, don't ever think that that's some beautiful sacrifice to the Lord. I don't want you to do that. And I wonder if when we look at some of the, uh, when we look at the modern church, the 21st century, particularly the Western church, and some of the forms of worship, do we see foreign, unusual methods of worship brought in? You know, the way uh, a lot of worship gatherings now and, and when you attend a church, it's kind of like you walk into this place that seems like an event is going on. There's a show about to begin. Even sometimes you have a countdown clock, you know, for this event that's about to, to kick off. The lights are dimmed. There's a huge stage. The spotlight is on. Churches begin being built off of simply charismatic leaders. You know, someone who has an attractive personality and a, 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 a musical worship team that is just exceptionally dressed with great sound system. It feels like you're at a Red Hot Chili Peppers concert. There, there are these practices that are brought in and uh, Vodi Bockham, a uh, pastor theologian, he's a principal of a school in um, Africa, Uh, He talks about this exact issue and in a really interesting way, he looks at how church buildings have evolved over time, over the last 2000 years, based off of what was central to their worship. And so he says, you know, from about the third or fourth century, when churches actually started to have buildings, when Christianity got powerful enough so that they could have a building. What was central to the church buildings, the way they were built for several hundred years was the table central to the room because the Lord's Supper was central to their gathering. So the building was built around the table where they would take the Lord's Supper together. And then you go to the Reformation 
1500s and you start uh, the, the cry of the Reformation was ad fontes, back to the source. So it was back to the word of God in the original language. And what was really important then was preaching the word of God, expository preaching, like actually preaching the word of God and seeing the word of God as central. So they had authority. And so what happened with churches being built was they had these huge, I mean, ridiculously huge. I've been to um, Geneva, to John Calvin's church, and his pulpit is like three meters high. It's huge. There's a huge staircase to get up there because what was central, like, I mean, they were trying to sort of show that God's word had authority. It wasn't that the preacher had authority. It was that God's word spoken had authority. And then you look at the way churches now are built. And what, how do you see most church buildings now? You see a, a very uh, luxurious building, millions of dollars spent on it, usually a big cafe area. You come in and there's a big stage the lighting is there to sort of show what's going on on the stage. And what Vody Bockham says is uh, what happened in church is they went from uh, the table. So it was the supper and then the pulpit was big. So it was the sermon. And now churches are built around the stage because it's the show. It's a show that's going on. It's a performance that happens on a Sunday morning. There's even this feel of like, almost similar to when you go to a movie and you go in and there's a sense of anticipation, you're ready to consume and then you leave and there's sort of this weird disoriented feeling leaving the movie. I wonder if you felt that leaving church, you sort of step out and you're like, oh, I get it. better get some lunch now or something. Like you sort of go into a bit of a different world and um, all of that to say, are there foreign methods of worship that have crept into the church that God might say, you must not worship me in that way. That's the way every other person worships their celebrities, their musicians, their sports teams. You must not worship me in that way. We must be very careful to not worship our God in the way that society worships their gods. The third principle, genuine worship requires cost and sacrifice. So this is in verse 6. As God explains how they are to worship rightly, he says, You shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings and your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. So we clearly see in this that worship requires cost and sacrifice. Look at all of the things they are to bring. It would have taken a lot of time to do this carefully as set out in the law. It wasn't like a slapdash five-minute job. Just go to your front yard, get some animals, slaughter it, offer it back in for dinner. It would have taken a lot of time. It would have taken a lot of time to travel to the location that God had set out. It would have cost them a portion of their livelihood. This was an agrarian society. It was how they made money, really, based off uh, the, the animals that they had and uh, their herbs and spices that they were supposed to offer. And God has ordained our worship to be costly in some sense. He has ordained our worship to be costly in some sense so that we would realize that the only thing ultimately worthy of our time, our effort and our resources is God himself. He has ordained it to be costly 
Because if it didn't require us giving up significant time, if this was easy, and that's a part of like what we do in the modern church now, is we make it as easy as possible for people to be Christians. If it didn't require significant time and effort, the requirement to forsake worldly pleasures, these sorts of things, then we could easily think that we are worshipping God when really we're worshipping something else, our own life, our own idea of comfort. It's like, my parents live about two minutes away from me now, and it's very easy for me to see them, to go over to their house. And so I could say, I'm a real family man. I'm devoted to them. I want to prioritize my family. It's very easy for me to go over. But what if they lived two hours away? What if they lived two days away? Would I still, would I take the cost? Or would I very quickly say, if they lived in Belconnen, which feels like two hours away, would, would I say, you know what? I'm not going to do it today. I'll give them a call. But actually, the cost, the cost of doing that will demonstrate where my devotion lies. So the cost of our worship demonstrates where our devotion lies. It gives us an opportunity to see that God is supremely worthy of every ounce of our devotion. And where there is no cost, we can easily deceive ourselves into thinking that we worship the Lord, but really we're worshiping ourselves. We're involving Jesus into our lives as opposed to giving our lives to him. God has ordained our worship to be costly so that our devotion would truly be devotion. Now, leading on to our fourth principle, our worship may require cost and sacrifice, but it also requires complete joy and pleasure. It requires complete joy and pleasure. So look at verse 7. When the offering is brought, the people are to eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice. You shall be joyful. You and your households in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Rejoice. You know, the three common words in the Old Testament that are used for joy or joyful or rejoicing are used over 300 times throughout the Old Testament. The command even to be joyful is used hundreds of times and all of the words combined for grieve and mourn, those sorts of words, are used half as much. There's more than double the amount of rejoicing and joy throughout the Old Testament, which people always look at as some depressing book. There's more rejoicing and joy in there than there is grief and sorrow. Remember in Nehemiah, the historical book, Nehemiah, after Ezra reads the law, this is like a time of revival. It's post-exile and they're sort of reorienting the people again to come back to obedience to God. And Ezra is reading out the law and the leaders see the people weeping and they say to the people, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So they're saying this day is holy to the Lord. Don't be, don't be sad. Be joyful. Eat delicious food and rejoice in the Lord. Be joyful because this day is holy to the Lord. It's a day of rejoicing. God is in our midst. For the Christian, our life will involve grief but as Jesus says, grief turns to joy. The, the Christian is, is um, well, Christ has set this pattern for us. 
He has set this pattern in his death and resurrection, that sorrow will always turn to joy. As we read in the Psalms, mourning will turn to dancing. Christ has set this pattern because in his death on Friday, there was sorrow and there was grief. But Sunday was coming and Sunday came and Christ rose from the dead. He is not here, he is risen. And there was joy, there was rejoicing. And that's the pattern that Christ has set for us. There will be sorrow, but there will be joy. Sunday will come. Now, the last aspect we see of worship in this passage is that genuine worship requires structure. So verses 8 to 14, the the modern misunderstanding of worship is that it has to be uninhibited and spontaneous all the time. There may be aspects of that, but it's a misunderstanding to think that worship always has to be uninhibited and spontaneous. I mean, look at this passage here. Worship is structured and ordered according to what Yahweh has commanded. He's very clearly saying, hey, this is how you are to worship me, according to the way I have prescribed. He says, you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today. Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. That's not how you worship me. You don't just follow your own desires. You direct your desires toward me and my prescribed means of worshipping me. So here particularly we see structure, the people that bring their offerings to the designated place. They're to do it in the way that God has prescribed. It wasn't as if the people could just arbitrarily decide to have Passover on another day and just say, well, I've I've got family visiting or I've got a game on, can I do Passover next Tuesday? It, it, it wasn't that way. Even, even when you could change the Passover date, like when people were unclean, and you read about that in the Bible, God had prescribed the way in which that was done. You do it on the, the same day the next month, if this happens. So there was a prescribed way of doing things. Though there is freedom in our worship, freedom does not negate structure. This is kind of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, when he... Um, corrects the Corinthians on the proper use of spiritual gifts. And he says, if you are going to pray in tongues, it should be done orderly. So there should be someone who is interpreting. There should be, and really just two, three at most done orderly so that all may be edified. Because he's saying, if it's just this chaos, like number one, if unbelievers come in, they're going to think you're loopy. And number two, you want people to be edified. So you want there to be unity. So do it orderly because he says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And all things should be done decently and orderly. There is structure. This is how we honor God. When we worship him to, according to his prescribed pattern. So those are our five principles. And I have five quick conclusions based off that. First conclusion we must tear down aspects of our life that take our God-reserved devotion. We have to tear down with the same severity that we read here, where God says, tear it all down. I don't want any of it left. And we have to tear down aspects of our life that take God-reserved devotion. We're to tear down parts of our, our life that are taking or have the potential to take our God-reserved devotion. And it's, it's with the same severity that Jesus gives when he says, if, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Get rid of that thing, man. Get rid of it. This is serious. 
We tear down habits of screen time that we have if it means that our attention is so given to those screens, our devices so much that by the time we try and engage with God and His Word, we're just exhausted or our minds are so distracted. We tear down those aspects of our life. We don't need it. We tear down practices of consuming content, of constantly consuming content, news, scrolling, whatever entertainment it is, because it, it conditions us to be averse to waiting and sacrificial service, to constantly be in patterns of consuming content, even possessions, materialism. It actually, it's shaping you. It's conditioning you to be averse to cost and sacrifice and to waiting on the Lord, which are fundamental to being a Christian. So tear it down. God is jealous for our exclusive and uncompromising worship. So we tear down with seriousness things that are inhibiting us from giving our devotion to Him and really leading us to idolatry. Second conclusion, we must not rely simply on internal emotions as true worship. We must not rely simply on internal emotions as true worship. That's not to say that there are not emotions involved in our worship, but it is to say that they do not necessarily mean that they are a reliable sign that you are worshipping. You know, I remember growing up, I, I used to go to a lot of music concerts and one of my favourite bands was Linkin Park. And I've probably mentioned this before. And I used to listen, for anyone, I used to have Hybrid Theory and Meteora. Back when you had Discmans, I would go one day, put Hybrid Theory and the other day Meteora and I would just listen to that probably like five times over through the day. And then I remember when I was uh, 16, I finally, Linkin Park were touring and I went and I just, and I'm not a charismatic dude. Like I'm re I don't, I don't display a lot of emotion. I'm pretty like monotone in voice and um, just, you know, I wouldn't say I'm someone with a lot of charisma. I'm not the life of the party. But I remember as soon as they started playing the chords to One Step Closer, and that started playing and I just like threw my hands up and I was in the mosh pit and there was this feeling of euphoria. It was incredible. I, I can still, I can still remember it now. And you know what? I went to this uh, like three years after becoming a Christian and I went to this uh, conference where it was at the same location, the Sydney Entertainment Center, same sound system but it was a Christian band playing. And I remember the same feeling, you know, the, the, the drums start going and it's the same feeling, very hard to distinguish between. I remember that. I remember at Lincoln Park, I was just, oh, I was in a place of ecstasy. I was worshiping. And it's very difficult, internal emotions. This is not to say that they're not like God doesn't use them. It's just to say that they're not a reliable they're not reliable evidence of genuine worship. So we don't purely rely upon internal emotions. If it was simply how we are led subjectively, isn't this what God is saying not to do when he says everyone doing what is right in their own eyes? We're not simply led subjectively through our internal emotions. They may be a part of it, but they're not everything. This leads us to a third conclusion. We must be affected in some way toward Christ. Affected with an A. We must be affected, moved 
in some way toward Christ. Being moved emotionally is not necessarily a sign of true worship. But if you are never moved emotionally, if there's never any emotion, if there's never any joy in you, then the question should be asked if you are actually worshipping the Lord. Particularly if there's never any emotion when we gather. There's emotion in the rest of your life, like when you go to see a band like Linkin Park. But when you gather, is there any emotion? Is there any love? Is there any affection in your private time? Is there anything there? Because though we cannot rely upon internal emotions, that is surely a part. Affections, like Jonathan Edwards says, the much better Edwards, religious affections. We have to be moved by affections. We're to have them. We are actually to be moved. Um, we, are, we are moved by the Spirit to have joy, to have zeal, besotted devotion toward Christ. And here's the difference between right affections and unreliable emotions is that all of the affections that we have are done in a way that, which, which magnifies the Lord and they are directed toward Him. They are directed ultimately toward Christ. That's reliable evidence when we are moved emotionally and it makes us want to pursue Christ more deeply. It makes us want to be part of community. We're actually affected and it's moving us toward Him. And we can magnify the Lord in this way, even in grief and sorrow. If you read through the Psalms, the way in which they just express their emotions, but it's all even in lament. It's like saying, God, your waves have crashed over me. Restore me, bring me to joy again. Everything is directed toward Him. So they do not simply involve God when really our devotion is directed toward ourselves and we might include God. It's more that our emotions, our affections are totally directed toward Him, toward Christ. The second last conclusion, our corporate worship when we gather our corporate worship should follow what God has prescribed. So we have clearly seen that God does not want his people worshipping him in ways that he has not prescribed. And this is where we get a thing called the regulative principle of worship, if you've ever come across that. It's just a term that basically says that God has prescribed the ways in which we are to worship. So the London Baptist Confession of 1689 says the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in holy scripture. This basically means that when we gather as a body to worship, God has prescribed, that is, He has set out the ways in which we are to worship in His Word. And what God has not clearly prescribed, which may not be sinful or wrong, but what is not clearly prescribed, we do not involve in our time of worship. So it's not wrong to... Um, dance and to have a group dance, like maybe even a, a break dance thing that expresses our um, giftings, if God has gifted us in that way. But it's not really set out in scripture to show that actually we form a break dance circle as part of our time of worship. It's just not set out. It's not really sinful to do that. 
because I think it's quite impressive to do that, but it's not really set out in Scripture. We have the means which God has given for how we are to worship. So we read God's word in our public gatherings, 1 Timothy 4.13. We preach 2 Timothy 4.2. We sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. We pray, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, we participate in baptism and the Lord's Supper. We take the sacraments as Jesus instituted, and all of it is centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And there is freedom in the ways in which these are done, like how many songs we sing, how much time in prayer, even where we meet. We're free to meet outside. We don't have to meet within four walls. We're free to apply it how we please as is honoring to the Lord, but we clearly see what is set out in Scripture. And we have a desire to stay faithful to what God has set out in His Word. And the regulative principle protects us from individuals like me, like other pastors who may try and impose their own ways of worship based on what their personal preferences are. It protects us from that because we, we have an objective measure of what God sets out in our time of corporate worship. And it ensures that we are not doing whatever is right in our own eyes, but rather we are faithfully following what God has set out. God has prescribed the way in which we are to worship. So this actually keeps us, it protects us from lunatics coming in and just charismatic leaders saying we should worship in all these crazy ways. And it keeps us faithful to what God has set out in his word. The last conclusion, our worship encompasses all of our lives. So you will notice, hopefully in this chapter, but then as we go on in Deuteronomy, the next several chapters are all about worship. They're all about how God desires his people to worship him. And so they include things like sacrifices, offerings, false teachers and how to respond to them, like false prophets, um, how to care for vulnerable people, living with others, not to take more land that you should. And it's all about how to rightly worship the Lord. That's what it's about. Because it's not simply referring to a time when they gather, it's actually their whole lives. And likewise, when we hear about worship in the New Testament, we are told to offer our whole bodies as living sacrifices as is our true and proper worship. We're told to offer everything. Our worship encompasses all of our lives, our thoughts, what we do with our bodies, what we eat. It's all done to the glory of God. It's all done as worship. In John chapter 4, a very uh, famous passage of Jesus talking to the woman at the well, and she asks him, hey, where is it that your people... The true people of God are going to worship. You know, our people say it's in Samaria. You say Jerusalem. Where is it? And Jesus says to her, the hour is coming and even now is here when the true worshippers or the Father will desire the true worshippers to worship in spirit and truth. So it won't be here or there. True worshippers will worship in spirit and truth. Now, what does it mean to worship in spirit? In the context of that, he's saying there's no physical location. It's not going to be earthly Jerusalem. It's not going to be in Samaria. It's not going to be a physical location. It's going to be in spirit. Which means we all have access. 
We all have access to the Father. The Father desires us to worship in spirit and in truth. We have access through Jesus who is the truth. And not only do we all have access, but this means that we don't turn on and off our worship. So it's because we're not going to worship in earthly Jerusalem. It's not like, you know, we can kind of be irreverent as we're walking to the temple. And then the closer we get to the temple, we start to say, all right, let me get serious now. Let me get serious about worshiping. Let me sort of be, you know, switch things on. It's not like we can actually turn on and off our worship. Because you are the temple. We are the temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we worship all the time. We don't turn it on and off. And this has huge implications for everything we've just spoken about. What God desires. What are we allowing into our lives? What do we need to tear down? We are supposed to be a worshipping people. We don't turn it on and off. We are not bound by time and place to commune with our Father. We worship in spirit and truth. So these are the five principles and five conclusions. And we're going to finish by singing. We might sing and and then we will take the Lord's Supper together. We're going to sing, Bless the Lord, O my soul, which is a wonderful way in which we can, um, as we sing, Think of it as us reorienting ourselves, like our whole lives are worshipful. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And this is saying, bless the Lord or praise the Lord. Magnify the Lord, oh my soul, oh my body. Soul is is everything. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. In the workplace, in my neighborhood, as I gather on a Sunday. Bless the Lord, oh my soul.